0: So I'm Sam from cs Properties and I'm Jake from Onyx Construction and together we are ramblings of a property investor. We thought we'd make this podcast because between us, we've got a lot of property experience. I specialise in student accommodation and HMOs. And I specialise in all aspects of construction. So we're going to do a week-by-week podcast, either talking about Jake's property experience or my property experience and offer insights to people that are either currently property investing or looking to get into property investing. And hopefully you guys can learn from our mistakes and how we've actually managed to get over them and put the policies and procedures in place to now make every project effective. We will also be interviewing some high-performance individuals that we know and other property investors to also shed some insight into the property investing world. Right then guys, this week I'm afraid it's only me. We're still you know, going to be doing it together of course, but it's just quite hard this week for our paths to align with both busy people. And instead of not releasing it on the Monday, I thought I'd just push on and do it by myself. I and mean, it won't be as entertaining as me and Jake, So it'll just be me mumbling on about a load of old rubbish really, but I suppose that is in the title of the podcast, so we'll push on anyway. I thought today i will just speak about just the basics of property investing, because I mean, for somebody, you know, I don't really know who our listeners are, but for somebody that's now trying to get into property investing, some of the stuff that I think people talk about all like these sort of fancy words and abbreviations and, you know, it's quite easy to kind of get lost in the basics of it. But, you know, fundamentally property investing is where you build up a pot of cash and then instead of leaving that pot of cash in the bank, you put your money to better use. So, you know, you've got different strategies and there's lots of property courses that some of them can be quite extortionate and they teach you lots of weird and wonderful things, lots of different names of things that I've never even heard of. But the basic ones are, you've got your standard buy-to-lets where that is where you physically, you'll put 25% of the house price down and then the bank will put up this other 75% and you will rent that out to a single family on a, a thing called an AST, which is an Assured Shorthold Tenancy Agreement. And usually, you know, they're there for a six month minimum period. And then they will physically, you know, you say your rent is £1,000 a month. They'll pay the £1,000 a month. Your mortgage will be, say, 500 and then the family will pay the bills. So then you'll be clear. five hundred pounds a month, obviously minus you'll have a couple of expenses here and there. But for a standard buy to let house, the tenant will pay the bills. So you should be clear. And I think in sort of in Norwich, you'd, from a single let, sort of £300, 400 four hundred pound a month is sort of average. It's just to some people, that doesn't sound like loads of money, but three hundred or four hundred pounds a month from your initial investment is really, really good. You know, you're not having loads of calls in the middle of the night. Well, hopefully you're not anyway. But the main thing of it being is that you're not getting loads of calls. It's quite a hassle-free investment. So, yeah, from a, terms of how much work and stuff you're going to be putting into it on a month-for-month basis, it's a really good way to go. But, you know, before you sort of start doing anything, you kind of need to decide why are you property investing? You know, is property investing for you? Because you, it's not. You know, when I was first getting into property, there's all these things online like passive income and, you know, you can buy one house and then never work again, you know, all this sort of stuff that kind of hypes it all up a bit. But property investing, there is a lot of work to it, whether you're, you know, fundamentally all the emails and stuff you have to do and the tenants, even just for a single let house, you know, you've got your gas safety certificates, you've got your electrical certificates, you've got, you know, if you don't have an electrical certificate, you're... Builders' insurance is then void. You know, there's lots of legalities and stuff you've got to do. um, And make sure you're on top of GPDR. know, there's a hell of a lot of regulations that you need to abide by. So it's not just, yeah, let's buy this house, put a family in there and not worry about it for 20 years. That certainly isn't the case. But I'd say, you know, if you have got a lump sum of money sitting in the bank, the best thing to do is to probably work out what your strategy is. Like, are you just looking for a, yep, 200, 300 pound a month for as little hassle as possible? Then I would say a standard buy-to-let would be a good way to go. You know, if you're looking at making chunks of cash, then flips. A flip is basically run through all the different general strategies. Anyway, I won't, I'm not going to bother going through the sort of weird and wonderful strategies today, but the main ones are standard buy-to-lets, student HMOs, professional HMOs, FLIPs and anything the called rent to rent. So the standard buy to let we've already been through, but then you also get HMO, which stands for house of multiple occupation. So that is basically a large house. And then you'll get the bedrooms and you split the bedrooms up into single rooms. And then they will share over a ki- kitchen and a communal area. So I've got experience of doing both student and professional HMOs, and they are a great way to make lots of money. Not lots of money, that's probably the wrong thing. They're a good thing to make, you know, they they cash flow quite well monthly. So they won't necessarily, you know, there'll be a lot more hassle. You'll have a lot more, and I wouldn't say hassle, but you you know, you're potentially dealing with, instead of just one tenant, you've got five tenants in one house. So, you know, you've got five separate people to deal with. So you'll have more admin, even if there's, there's no real problems. You'll just have more admin work. There's more people um, coming and going, so just generally you know, the house has got more wear and tear. Even just things like your footfall from your carpet, you know, your dishwashers getting used a lot more. Everything, you, you know, your gates are getting shut more. So every single thing that is you could imagine is getting used a hell of a lot more. So you're gonna. You know, it's just the nature of the beast. You're going to get called out a lot more from a HMO than you will a single let, even if you've got the world's best tenants, you know, it's just, you just will. And so that is a good way to create monthly cash flow. And I mean, you don't need too many of them to actually mimic your salary. You know, if you're earning sort of £2,000, a month, you know, you don't need so many HMOs to kind of mimic that salary. So it's quite a good way that people can kind of get out of their jobs and then look at other strategies in the future. If that's what they want to do. Uh, there's another strategy called flips, which is basically you will buy a property on a, a bridging product, and then you a bridging product is basically a mortgage, but it's a product where you're going to do lots of high renovations. So you'll buy that property you will do the renovation work and then basically at the end once you've bought it once you've renovated it and then you'll sell that house for say I don't know £50,000 more than you paid for it well hopefully £100,000 more than you paid for it and then you spent fifty pounds on it so then you'll make £50,000 but obviously you've got to depend on whether you bought the property in a personal name to a limited company there's obviously different tax implications and as we're going back as well to the HMOs you've either got a professional HMO or a student HMO, so they're very different beasts within themselves. So a professional HMO it tends to be where the rooms are on a separate AST. Each bedroom has got its own AST, so people will be coming and going from the rooms at different time of the year. So, you know, it's absolutely fine, but even with all the due diligence you can do on a tenant, it only takes one tenant that doesn't get on with the rest of the house. So, you know, say if you've got a five-bedroom property and then all of a sudden, one tenant moves in, you know, they've checked out fine. You've done all your sort of finance checks, they're a lovely person. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, not necessarily their fault or the other housemates fault, but you know, there's a bit of a clash in the group. All of a sudden you've got quite a bit of bad feeling and you know, the people that have been there a couple of years now might not live in there quite so much. So that can be a little bit tedious sometimes to say the least. But then on the other hand of a student HMO, Cause we're we, you know, we mainly target or we do target um second year um students, and they basically already know each other, so they don't come to you with all their little small disagreements and you know arguments and stuff because they know each other, they just sort it out between themselves, so that's good. And also, with a student HMO, that the parents are all guarantors. So, if for whatever reason, um, you know, say so Jane didn't I don't have a tenant called Jane, that's just an example, so don't worry, Jane, you're not a real person. Um, but, you know, if Jane didn't pay for whatever reason, then Sarah would then be liable to pay. And then, you know, the other three housemates would be liable to pay. And after none of them have paid, then it goes to the guarantor, So you've got quite a bit of, um, you know, you're guaranteed, also well, I suppose that's where the title comes from, really, isn't it? You're kind of, it's a lot safer to have a student HMO in my eyes than it is a professional HMO, but we do have both. So I think they're both, it's good to have one of each because then you're kind of covered... In both markets, I think that's quite a safe way. You know, there is quite a lot of people that, you know, would maybe start with a single let property, get that making sort of three, four hundred. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not three or four hundred pound a month. Some will sort of clear upwards of depending on your area, but there's a couple near me that I know about that sort of clear six hundred, seven hundred pound a month, which is, you know, and they don't get any phone calls or anything and that's, you know, it's been ongoing for a year or so now and same tenants are still in there. Not one phone call at all, really. So it's definitely not something to be sniffed at, but you know maybe that's quite a good way to get into it is to do a single let, build up a bit of confidence, and then go into a HMO because I mean it is quite a there is quite a lot more to a HMO even in terms of the renovation and the the rules and stuff. But it's not rocket science. I mean each council has got its own fire standards and amenity standards, and you can just physically just instructions. You know if you could read a recipe book, you can understand these rules. It's really not once you've kind of understood them and been through them a few times, it's really not so bad. So our council, not the student council, but the professional HMO council, they were very, very helpful when I called them up initially. So the lady there was more than happy to come out when well, I met her and she was like, oh, you know, you need to do this, this, and this. And they were very sort of forthcoming, happy. You know, you'd kinda think that councils wouldn't necessarily want HMOs, but in this in my particular case, this lady was ever so helpful, really forthcoming, told me sort of what needed to be done, come back and checked everything I'd done, she was happy. There's a really good sort of outcome on that behalf. And then basically there's another um, strategy called rent to rent. I don't do rent to rent, but rent to rent I know quite a lot of people that I'm in a WhatsApp chat with a lot of people that do, and the fundamentals is basically you will find a landlord that for whatever reason, doesn't want to manage his property anymore. He might be, you know, sort of retiring or, you know, he's got another job or he might have had the house um, sort of left to him an inheritance or, you know, whatever the reason may be, but, you know, a landlord that has sort of fallen out of love with the property. And then he, you will basically rent the house from him for an example, say 700 pounds a month. You will then tart the property up a little bit, maybe spending two or £3,000 or maybe more in some circumstances, sort of doing the house up, furnishing it. And then you will put it on something like a platform like Airbnb or booking.com. And then, you know, you may make 1500 to £2,000 a month and then you'll pay the landlord £700 a month. And, you know, people do do this at a 100% work. So I know somebody, I'm not going to name his name, but he's making a ridiculous amount of money per month through it. Um, He loves it. I think he's got sort of between 30 and 40 um, properties. Uh, You know, in this WhatsApp chat, there's about 15 people that are all doing it very successfully. I think most of them actually do it as a full time job. So, yeah, there's definitely people that make a hell of a lot of money for doing it. And I think it certainly is a good strategy and one that needs to be um, thought about. But, yeah, just going back to the standard sort of buy to let product, you know, the, the basics of it would be if you were to. Buy a house for so I don't know easy numbers for an example would be say two hundred thousand pound. You would then need to put twenty five percent in, so that would be fifty thousand pound. The bank would then put up, you know, the mortgage company would put up the other hundred and fifty thousand pound. So then you know at the moment you're into it for fifty thousand pound, but then you've got your stamp duty. I, mean, I haven't actually worked out what it's probably between sort of five and six thousand pound. Your solicitor fees probably £1,500. You know, you'll have a couple of other searches and valuation fees here and there, There's a couple of other little costs. And then say you would then spend, I don't know, £30,000 for an example. We spend a little bit, quite a bit more than that on our refurbishments, but I know some people that do somehow manage to do a refurbishment for £30,000. And then the new value, say for instance, you could get the new value up to £300,000. So then what you do is you get a new mortgage on this 300,000 pound. And then that new mortgage amount would be 225,000 pounds. So then what you do, because your old mortgage amount, if you remember, was only 150. So now your new mortgage amount is 225. You would literally take away the old mortgage amount from the new mortgage amount. So 225, take away 150 would be 75,000. So then theoretically, once you remortgage that property, you could then pull out £75,000 to go again. So if you can buy a house cheap enough, add value onto it to then get a high enough new value, you can literally then remortgage it at the higher value, take away the lower value, you know, your original mortgage product, pull out the money and then go again, go again, go again. Don't get me wrong, it's not profit that you're taking out, it's debt on the property, but it's good debt because basically you're pot of cash is just going and going and going and going and you know quite a lot of people will just always try and find these type of deals where you can take out all your money I mean we don't do that we try and take out a little bit and or as much as we can but you know I personally think a deal is better than sort of no deal but we do have quite strict sort of formulas you know we don't overpay we know exactly what we need to be paying up to and we just won't I mean at the moment it's just absolutely bizarre There was a house that came on the other day and You know, it was probably £50,000 under what it should have been, but purple bricks for some reason, I don't know, they just seem, I think they must just do it to drum up interest maybe, or maybe they just don't know the area well enough. But they had 23 viewings, was on there for about five minutes and sold for for about £30,000 more than it should have done. So at the moment, we're physically just sitting on our hands and not buying just because the houses just don't fit within our formula. And it just doesn't work for us, basically. But, yeah, that would be how you would, you know, if you were to try and build a buy-to-let portfolio, you would buy a house low, as low as price you can, add as much value onto it as you can to increase the value. So, you know, so when the value of like the Rick Surveyor comes out, he, you know, you want him to be valuing it a lot higher than you bought it for. Then you'll get the new, a mortgage on that new value. You'll minus the... Old value from the new value, and then that say seventy-five thousand pound. You can then take out tax-free, and move on to the next house, and then go again and again and again and again. I think to be a good property investor, you basically need to buy low, add value, de-risk your portfolio as well. So it's no good having, you know, eighty percent buy-to-let products are now coming back on the market, but. I don't kind of want to be one of them people that is just over leveraged and everything. So, like, everything is to the bone. So, I think you kind of need to de risk your portfolio. Like, there's no, if, you know, if the interest rates do ever go up, which which, which they will, that's somebody, you know, I'm sort of saying that as if they won't ever, but, you know, they definitely will. You know, you don't want to be one of them people that now loses all their houses and, you know, really comes into trouble. Because at the moment, everything's looking great. People are overspending 20,000, 30,000. You know, there's only, you know, don't get me wrong, the market might keep going up and up and up, but it's definitely going to come down at some point. And I don't want to be one of them people that's sort of struggling for money and thinking, oh, shit, I can't now pay my mortgage. You know, you kind of need to be stress-testing your portfolio. You really don't want to be over-leveraged and everything. You know, you've got an office, you've got a car, you know, you've got high monthly expenses. So we're trying to kind of live below our means de-risk the portfolio, have a little bit of a cash buffer just so then if the interest rates do go up, you know, you're kind of set. I mean, people will say to you, it's crazy keeping money in the bank. But the thing is when the economy does have a downturn, you're not going to be able to just get, at the moment money is quite readily available, but, you know, you can't, Where when everyone's struggling with money and you need to get 20 grand, for example, or 10 grand, you know, however much it might be, you're not going to be able to get it. So the people that have de-risked that portfolio and got a little bit of money, set aside. You know, you don't need loads, but just a nice little five grand, ten grand buffer, just sitting there, just for you know, if the you know, if you do struggle, if you do have a hard year, you know, you can then keep affording to pay the mortgages, and you're not physically having to work sort of 50, 60 hour week just to pay your mortgage off for something that you thought was actually going to be making you more money, and all of a sudden has gone pear shaped. So yeah, that's what we're trying to do. But yeah, I feel like I've rambled on for enough now. Next week, Jake will be back, so that'll probably be a little bit more fun and maybe not quite as insightful. But yeah, thanks for listening. Next week, maybe I think I'll actually talk about the most recent student project we've done. So that is actually finance for a bridging company. So we bought it for a bridging company and then we used something called development finance. So that's basically where we didn't actually have enough money to do the refurbishment project. So we put 30% of the purchase price down and then the finance company financed the whole development. And then at the end, basically all the bills get added up and then you come off that product and you go to sort of a high street lender and then you go onto a standard mortgage product. So yeah, maybe next week we'll look into that in a bit more detail. Cheers.